morning, family. I'm so glad you're here and you're watching online. I'm so glad that you have joined us. We're going to continue in our series we've been doing on why we can trust the Bible. And trusting the Bible um, is really about, is the Bible, the in fact, the inspired word of God? What we believe is that the Bible is actually every word is exactly what God wants for us. All that's in it is really God breathed and God wants us to understand and to know it. And uh, the Bible itself tells us that we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God. The Bible tells us that we, needs to, we, 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 uh, we can count on the fact that God's word, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. Um, so the truth of God's word is so important to us. What we're doing in this study and why we started it a couple weeks ago is not because most people in our church don't already believe. I, I know that there are some that you're new and there are people who are learning, there are people online who watch. And maybe you have not come to the conviction that the Bible is, in fact, the inspired word of God. But the fact is that even if you already believe that, there, my desire is that understanding and having a confidence, a greater confidence in God's word, you'll step it up a notch. That we'll all kind of take and we'll just take a, a, a more serious um, approach to the scriptures in our devotional life, in our study time, in ways in which we can get the word of God into our lives. That we'll start to look at opportunities and ways in which we can take this incredible book and put it into our heart. And so um, we've been taking a look at last um, two weeks ago, we started by, you know, approaching the fact, can we trust the Bible historically? Because if the Bible is not accurate historically, then, well, we can't really trust it. If you can't trust what it says, then there's really no reason to continue, you know, reading it, go get a novel or something. But if the Bible is, in fact, historically accurate, then we might be able to then determine that anything in it, um, we have to be, take seriously in this. Now, we said that there's not one thing, though I think there are some pretty strong um, arguments for the Bible with just a couple of these things. But the fact is that there's so many truths that we can hold on to. Every, everything that keeps taking us back to the scriptures, this is God's word. We said it's kind of like, Killing the idea that the Bible isn't the Word of God with a, you know, with a million paper cuts. It just keeps, it just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming at you if you have that argument that you don't believe it's God's uh, inspired Word. And so we took a look at the accuracy historically. And what we found is that there are thousands and thousands of archaeological findings that has really um, embarrassed the, um, the critics of the Bible from a historical standpoint. Historians who kind of threw off the Bible and said, well, it's just some kind of religious book and, you know, it's really a lot of made-up stuff. Those historians, they're hard to find right now. They're, they're kind of hiding. They're, because all of these things, and, and, and it's, it's not that I, 
you know, it, it's not so much a put down on their history. They just decided that they weren't going to use the Bible as a historical book even. Even if you don't believe it's, it's uh, inspired, you would, you know, is it good history? And they just tossed it out. And they tossed it out because of the supernatural workings that the Bible talks about historically. So the Bible gives us history and it gives us supernatural history. It tells us about things that happened miraculously in the storyline. And so they just threw it all out. Well, when you do that, now you've got problems because as archaeology keeps advancing, what they keep doing is proving the Bible over and over and over and over again. And the and, and the uh, in, encouraging thing about that is that archaeology is advancing at an uh, exponential rate right now. They're finding things and doing more digs than they've ever done all over. In fact, even last year, even though it was COVID and they had to stop some of the digs, they found, um, th there's a lot of amazing things found, um, even segments of the scripture again. Um, but a lot of things have been found in just this last year. And now that's happening exponentially. Well, every time they dig up something historically that relates to Bible and Bible times, what does it do? It just supports the Bible. It just keeps on supporting that the Bible is accurate. And there are things in the scripture that only contemporaries who wrote it would know, at least as we see it. And then we do a dig we find this dig that shows that what the Bible said, and there's no history of it anywhere else, but what the Bible said, actually the archaeological dig says, yep, Bible was right. And so we wanted to go through that, and there are plenty of resources to go deeper into that. But listen, that, um, even that argument uh, against the historical accuracy of the Bible has been diminished. People are not writing new books and saying, see, the Bible's wrong. There's not any archaeological findings where people go, here, this disproves the Bible and the Bible's wrong. You're not finding that anymore. Nobody's doing that because it doesn't work that way. The, the finding is that the Bible is accurate and you can count on it completely historically accurate. Well, here's the thing. If it's historically accurate and it gives us all this history and then it tells us about like the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea and there's a miracle, do we believe? Well, we have to give, we have to get some credence to the fact that the eyewitnesses that witness all these other things that they wrote down historically, that they were eyewitnesses of that too, you know, or they had revelation of that too. And there's understanding that we have to take and give, even if you don't, didn't believe the Bible, you would have to give some credit to that, at least, as you look down, even if you don't believe in miracles. So the Bible does this. And, and then, then the issue is the Bible transfers truth accurately. Um, this is something that also, more and more as we're finding, um, we're finding scrolls, we're finding uh, parchments. We're finding parts of the Bible in, the, you know, just last year in, in a cave near the uh, Dead Sea where we found parchment, parchments, portions of scripture that, uh, that date, date back, you know, 100 years before Christ and so forth. What we're discovering is um, these things are keep, keep supporting the fact that you have an accurate, what you have is accurate and that your, your Bible is accurate. And, uh, and 
If, for instance, if you um, sat under, you know, some prof in, in college who said, you know, the Bible is, it, it contradicts that, that the, the, you don't, can't really count on the fact that what you have was what was written 2,000 years ago or more. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of professors, you know, they, they went to school 35 years ago and they haven't updated their information when it comes to issues about the Bible. So they're just still relying on, on year, you know, decades old information that should have been updated in their own study. But th that, they'll throw that out at you. And many students have kind of get all shook up about it. Let me tell you something. You don't have to get shook up about anything, any critics of the Bible. There are, there, there's proof, support, and it's at your hand. You can, you can find it real easy. And we put some, some resources on our website so you can, if you want to, uh, go down that road. But the transferring process we talked about, I, I'm not going to reteach what I taught, but let me just give you a summary of this, that um, because of the copying process, how detailed they were in the copying process, that what we have, what was written in the first century by the eyewitnesses, we're talking about the apostles and those who are eyewitnesses, the apostle Paul and, uh, and Peter who... who uh, who Mark uh, scribed for, and uh, and Luke and and John, you know, eyewitnesses that they wrote before, within forty years of the resurrection. Mark way early, just uh, less than a decade, uh, uh, he wrote his his um, story of of what he saw, and um, and so what you end up having is. First century, within 40 years, less than 40 years, all the writings of the Bible from eyewitnesses. And then those writings, those originals, were kept for up to 300 years. We know the Gospel of John was still around in 290 A.D., the, the original, where people could go and see it and copy it, and that's what they did. The copies. But what we did also find is because what you, you heard up until... The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the early 50s, you know, I think um, since 1947 to, well, we're still finding stuff. But, um, but what you found was that our, the earliest copy was 1,100 years maybe, you know, earlier. And so now we find a copy that goes all the way to the beginning free, be, before Christ, an old, like the scroll of Isaiah, in fact, the entire Old Testament before Christ, we have findings. So we could look at that 1,100-year period and say, wow, it's incredibly accurate. Because we see that all these copies that are, we don't have, but what we have is this one, and we have this one that's 1,100 years later, and we look at it and we go, they're, they're like the same. Now, you'll hear, you'll hear critics, unfortunately, I think in a dishonest way, We'll say there's thousands of errors, thousands of errors. 
And they won't be honest with you about this because when you hear error, you think, oh, they wrote something wrong. You know, they wrote a whole section. There's, you know, there's all these things, errors in it. No, that's not what they say. When they say error, what they mean is one word might have been spelled wrong. That's an error. It might have two ends instead of one. In, you know, if it was English, just, you know, an extra letter that was written. Or um, what they did is sometimes the word, the way it was spelled, changed over the years. So they, they made the change, as we have in, in English, the same thing. If you went back a thousand years and listened to somebody speak English, you wouldn't know what they were talking about. It's that different. And that's the issue that we we see, we do not see major changes. 99.5% is just like it. The other half a percentage is mostly um, spelling errors and word changes because the language has changed and only a few places with no, that, that were added by a scribe and we can check it. Because we have enough copies that we can go, okay, this is an outlier. Somebody added this. That we know we're, we can be extremely confident that everything in your Bible is exactly what, the way it was written originally in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. So, um, it gives us this, yes, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the translations of the Bible. And then... The Bible is scientifically accurate. Now, the Bible isn't a science book, but wherever it gives us science, it's accurate. And wherever it, but, but even more, to, to get confidence in the Bible, it's what the Bible doesn't say scientifically that is also gives us confidence. And we talked about the fact that the Bible doesn't just spew out the science of the day. Because the science of the day was bad. So the Bible doesn't give us the science of the day. See, the science, when the Bible was written, much of, in fact, almost all uh, of the, the time of the entire Bible, people thought the earth was flat. The entire time of the Bible. Over the 1,600 years that it was written, 40 different authors, not one come out and say the earth is flat. Not only that, in the days, in those times we talked about, people thought the earth had to be held up with some. This flat earth was held up and they came up with different things. Elephants held it up with a, you know, a giant tortoise or, or the five pillars of Egypt held it up or Atlas held it up, all of that. But what we do find is 2,600 years ago, the Bible says that the earth is a sphere. It's a, it's a ball. How did the Bible know it also says in Job, the oldest writing that we have in history, the oldest literature in history, the Bible, Job, says that the earth is held up by nothing. It's, in, it's, it's just held up by nothing. Now, nobody ever thought of that. But the Bible says it. So what the Bible doesn't say and what the Bible says is accurate. And we, I'm not going to go into all of that. We took some time. I ran a little bit of, of space on it. But, um, but we found out too that, listen, the, the, there are some findings, some things that have changed the course of the scientific viewpoint that is bringing science back in alignment with the Bible. One of the things was 
um, you know, the Hubble's discovery of the expanding universe and that the universe had a beginning. So the idea that the universe had a beginning in the, in the mid-60s, early 60s, and um, I mean, f from the time when science accepted it, it was a shocker. You know, Einstein totally pushed back against it. Many, many of the scientists in, at that time pushed back against uh, an expanding universe or a beginning time of the universe. Why? Because they said the problem was that, um, you know, they, they, they didn't want to believe in so that the universe had a beginning because if the universe had a beginning, then there's a possibility there's a God who created the universe. In fact, there would have to be something. And so there was a lot of pushback. It took a while until they had to accept that. Um, other findings have now uh, really made a huge difference in the way that we, um, you know, view uh, the world, the universe, physics, all of that has the, the new findings, the things that we have found over the last several decades, and the idea of intelligent design in the universe, how, not only that the, how the universe started, but, the, but, but the, the first cell, as people will call it. And see, microbiology has made a big difference in the way we view the, the, the universe today, or the world today. And we used to think that a cell, I remember growing up in school, biology telling us that this, you know, the single cell was some kind of protoplasm, some this gel thing that kind of evolved and it split and, you know, it, it had life. And now we know that that single cell is incredibly complex, incredibly complex. It's like a, it's like a city. I mean, it's like it's got little dump trucks and I mean there are things in the cell in the in, in the um, DNA transfer that look like they look like little robots that walk I mean it's, it's, it's incredible and the process of the DNA and the big, the big issue of course is the information which is not a chemical transfer there's no chemical transfer in this it's information and so what does science do with that? If you have complex information that is transferred, you have to, it's, it's, you know, it's more than just even a good uh, uh, computer program. There's, there's a way of, of transfer information and receptivity of, of, of information. And that becomes a problem, an issue that's going on. And because of these things, you have, for instance, in November of 2016, um, just five years ago, less than five years ago, the Royal Society of Science in London uh, held a very important meeting, a very important um, conference. And that, that society is the oldest science um, society that we have and, um, and arguably um, the most respected. But, um, you know, Isaac Newton, in fact, was one of those who, uh, who held seat at, uh, at the Royal Society. Um, but they addressed what, what, this is what they call it. They addressed perceived inadequacies in the standard neo-Darwinian theory of evolution. And they said the Darwinian theory, theory 
of evolution has failed to explain complex anatomical features and structures in life. Microbiology has shown us some things. So, what they said is this. Evolution, listen, this isn't your university level science or, or, or professor. This is the highest level. What happens in these, in these gatherings is what is eventually brought down to the university levels and it takes years sometimes to get there. But this is where that level is discussed. White papers and so forth that are discussed at that level. What happens is they gather together and over a 10 year period, there wasn't one significant paper giving support to evolution in, at this level. And everything was looking at things and saying, we got problems. So they had this gathering and when they were done, they, they said this, Darwinian evolution doesn't work. It has failed us. It does not have the answers. So this is what they said. We, we, um, we have to work on evolution 2.0. That's actually a term they used. Evolution 2.0. What is evolution 2.0? Well, if you ask them, what is evolution 2.0? They'll tell you, we don't know. We don't know. But we know what we know doesn't work. And what we're finding out is intelligent design is leading people. In fact, a lot of scientists, many scientists, not the whole community, but many scientists are now, who were atheists, are now both uh, deists, theists, and Christian. They've come from that because of, of the evidence that has come out. Now, um, so I have a short period of time to share with you a little bit more about this, and I'm going to give you, talk about uh, four more uh, issues that help us. There are those things that just kind of shut the door on the fact um, that the Bible is reliable. We can, we can, uh, and the, so it's this one here. The Bible prophetic is prophetically accurate. The Bible is prophetically accurate. Is there a book that predicts the future and gets it right 100% of the time? Is there a book like that? Yes, it's the Bible. And here's the thing. You can usually find critics on everything. You, are, you have a hard time finding a critic when it comes to this point about the Bible's prophecy. It, it, you, you're not finding books written about it. Why? Nobody wants to touch this as a critic, touch this subject. Because the Bible has thousands of prophecies that either have already come true because it was in the time frame of the Bible already, or history, history, or it's looking to the future and has. So 25% of the Bible, a quarter of the Bible is prophecy. So this book, a lot, there's a lot of prophecy in this book. And most of it has already been fulfilled. And so... When you look at the prophecy in the Bible, you have to come to this conclusion. It has to be someone outside of time and space who is giving information to someone inside time and space to, about what is happening in the future. Because someone inside time and space could not figure it out. There's no way. Some of these prophecies are hundreds of years in advance and extremely detailed. And the only answer is someone outside of time and space 
Now, we know who that someone is, and that's God. He's outside time and space, and he gives information to, to people, prophets and, and so forth, in time, inside time and space. And as he gives that information, they're able to give us information about the future. And the Bible has done that thousands of times. Like I said, a quarter of the Bible is prophecy. It happens over and over and over again. And we look at history and we can see the things the Bible says is going to happen actually happen. And that should give us a real confidence about what the Bible says is going to happen. Absolutely. It's been so accurate all the way, 100% accurate all the way through. We can count on the fact that when the Bible talks about something happening in the future, you can bet on it. It is going to happen. The Bible is incredibly accurate in, the, in, in every way. And it's, its accuracy is mind-boggling. For instance, when it talks about Jesus, for instance, you have the Old Testament, you have portions of Scripture like in Isaiah. In fact, if you... If you are ignorant of how the Bible's put together in the history of the Bible, you might come to a conclusion. In fact, I've heard people actually say this, and it kind of exposes some things. They'll say things like, well, the Bible was actually written afterward. So these prophecies were written afterward, and you just think they were written before. Which is, it would be hilarious if it was so ignorant. Um, because we have the Bible, we have the actual scrolls of the scriptures that date way before. See, that's the problem. The problem is we have found the scrolls. Like the, like the, the, the entire Old Testament except for Esther, we have, we have that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But you have, for instance, prophecies from Daniel and Isaiah and so forth that, that speak of Christ in detail about what would happen, you know, and our, just our, we know that, that actually they were written sep, six, seven hundred years before Christ, but we actually have copies that are 100, 150, I'm sorry, 150 to 200 years before Christ, our copies, okay? We have copies later too, but we have, I mean, fragments, but we have full copies 150 to 200 years before Christ, and so Isaiah did say it, and he did say it before Christ, and he did prophesy it, you know, and Daniel and all the, the others who also did that. And we can know exactly that they said it, and we know the history of it. Not only do we have, by the way, we don't just have eyewitness. We have the eyewitness history in, in um, you know, in, in the writings of the apostles and so forth, the gospels and, and Paul. We have those that were first century writing. But we also have extra biblical. There, there's 11 extra biblical texts that talk about Jesus. You know, we have historians like Josephus who wrote about Jesus outside of the Bible. I don't think we need them, but because the Bible has already got enough proof of its validity and so forth that we can just trust it. But it's just a fact. I mean, you, you really have a hard time trying to, to, to push against this. But the prediction of Jesus, over 300 of them, and many in detail, and um, some, um, some mathematicians actually got together to, to do some work to figure out what was, the, what was the possibility of those 300 plus uh, prophecies what was the possibility of them happening by chance in one person? And they do the math by 
you know, the, the, you know, knowing how many so-called, um, you know, how many children, uh, how, what was the population level in, in Bethlehem at the time, and, and, and just, uh, you know, they start adding them up. They fir first started with just eight, if eight was fulfilled, and they came to an astronomical number. Then they decided to try to do it with all of the over 300. And what they found out is that the odds of one person like accidentally fulfilling all these prophecies would be um, more, in fact, the number is one to the 10 to the 127th power. That number is larger than all the atoms in the known universe several times over. I mean, it's a huge number, incomprehensible number. But if you had all, how many atoms are in the, I mean, atoms, you can't, how small? All the atoms, and if you just marked one atom, I know how you can mark an atom, but if you could, if you could mark just one atom in the entire universe, it could be in our galaxy or one of the hundred billions of galaxies out there in one little spot, maybe in the center of an earth somewhere, or a sun, or out in it. And then you blindfold someone and says, you can go around and try to find it. Right? We'll give you a spaceship. But you only get one shot, and you got to blindfolded pick an atom. And you get one shot to get the right atom. That, there's no odds to that. Mathematicians say that's impossible. There is an impossible number, by the way. And it's, it, that, that's gone way past it. It's impossible. So, what the Bible predicts happening by chance is impossible. But that's just one of that's just talking about the 300 referring to Christ. But we have prophecies throughout the scripture, you see. And, um, you know, the Bible says in 2 P Peter 1.21, for, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Revelation 22, 6 says, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the... Of, of the holy prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must sure, sh shortly take place. This is how prophecy comes by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you three because I can't give you several thousand today. I'm going to give you three. Just, just to kind of get, get kind of an idea of how some of these prophecies work. And some of them are, are these are kind of interesting so I, I chose these. In um, in 597 B.C., there was a city named Tyre, and it was a well-known city of the day. It was one of the most secure cities in the ancient world at that time. And it was, it was secure because of the way it, it, they had developed the city, and it was a very wealthy city. And um, go ahead and, and show the, the uh, map. So this area over here, which is this green area, the site of coastal city of Tyre, that was destroyed by the Babylonians. What happened was um, Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied that the Babylonians would come. In fact, uh, um, Jeremiah prophesied that the, 
uh, Jews would be taken captured by the Babylonians. But, and, and said that they would be in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah actually prophesied that. And he said it would be in captivity for 70 years. We read about that in Daniel. When Daniel starts to realize that 70 years is coming to pass. And there's gonna be, they're going to be kind of freed from that. But what you have is this area, this coastal area was the city of Tyre. But there was this island, and you see that kind of um, walkway from the, from, that wasn't there. That was added later. So, and the way it was, the city had a, a wall that went like this to the ocean. It went, and so when they'd come from the land, they had this massive wall that they would have to break through. But if they did, they had ships to take the people to the island that was also fortified. It made it extremely hard in the ancient world for them to be able to be conquered. And so when Jeremiah and Isaiah said that this city would be destroyed, it didn't say that they would just be destroyed. It said that the, that the city of Tyre would be taken to, to the rock level. It would... Everything in the sea would be thrown into the sea, completely destroyed, thrown into the sea. Even the dirt would be thrown into the sea, and all there would be was stone left on the city. Now, that seemed radically um, impossible um, in that day, radically impossible. And so the, the prophecy was that, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar would go to destroy the city. And he was able to come and destroy the mainland city. But the people got away into the island, and Nebuchadnezzar could never fully conquer Tyre. Well, then, you know, then, uh, 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 you know, a hundred years later, um, Alexander the Great decided he wants to conquer Tyre. Now, Tyre had been rebuilt in the city. They had the walls, and he broke through there again, like Nebuchadnezzar did. But when he destroyed the city, and they, and they went off to the island city, what he decided to do was he took all the city, everything in the city, the, the buildings, the walls, everything, and dragged them to the sea and built that walkway across, even the dirt so that as the Bible predicted, there would be nothing but rock and stone where the city lay. And he built that across, was able to conquer the, the island of Tyre, as the Bible says. Now, how would they know? How did, how did they know that would happen that way? They had, somebody had to seen it before it happened and told them. Um, the city of Babylon. Here's another one. Bible prophesies about the city of Babylon. Show the the city of Babylon was incredibly fortified. And remember that Babylon conquered uh, Israel and conquered um, Judah and um, and brought um, the people to Babylon, captured them, and that's when Jeremiah said that they would be there for seventy years. But also they pro prophesied, the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied about Babylon and said this. One is they would, they would come to a place of a drunken stupor. You know, uh, uh, they, would be, they, would, they, they would be so drunk and they'd be asleep. And then it prophesied that the, that the river will be cut off 
and that they would be destroyed and the king of the Medo-Persian Empire would conquer them. Even naming the name of a man who wasn't even born yet. Okay? So Babylon, if, if this was a wider map, you would see the Euphrates River go actually around the city. Around the city of Babylon. It, it, it's surrounded. It's split. And there was a part of the Euphrates that went right through the city under the walls. The waterway. Now get this. The Bible says that it would be cut off. When Cyrus... We, we have all this in history. We have historic, this isn't just Bible stuff. This is what we have in history. When Cyrus got to Babylon, he was wondering, and we, we know the story in the Bible, that they had this, they kept part, they had this parties for several days. They got so drunk, they were all asleep, and they were so arrogant, nobody could break in. And they could have, they could be in siege for who, decades, and no one could conquer them. The walls of the city, get this, the walls of the city were 75 feet wide and 300 feet tall. I mean, that's huge. No one's going to throw a rock and just break it down. Right? So there's no way that anybody's going to penetrate that city. 75 feet wide, 300 feet tall. And, uh, and so they're, they're happy and partying and they know the Babylonians want to destroy them, but they know they can't do it. So what do they do? They, they have this party. They go to sleep. Cyrus comes in and he diverts this portion of the water that goes through the city into a basin. So it dries up. And they walk under the walls into the city and completely destroy it exactly like the Bible prophesied. Exactly. I'm going to give you one last because one of my favorites. And um, it's, uh, it's the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. This chapter, uh, written by Isaiah, prophesying about the Messiah who was to come and what he would ac accomplish, what he would do. In fact, even today, um, this portion of scripture when read in the synagogues is, uh, is not read in the synagogues. It's not read. And, uh, and there's good reason for that. It's very hard to explain if you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in fact, I, I know of people who have actually shared their faith, shared this portion of scripture with Jews that didn't believe, and the Jews, as they read it, the, 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 they say, see, this is about Jesus. And the Jew, Jews have said to them, well, um, I don't believe the New Testament. It's not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. This is written 700 years before Christ. And I'm just going to read it. And hear what God says. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. So I'm like, where does he come from? He has no form or calmness that we see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was not a handsome man. Okay? All the pictures. He's got these beautiful eyes and he's so handsome. You would not have looked at Jesus and said, that's a handsome man. That, isn't that like God? 
That's not how man would do it. We'd choose somebody who was just extremely attractive, and they would be the upfront people, right? And you can't even be a news broadcaster unless you're beautiful, right? So he says, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we, were, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. Isn't that true? The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. That was a testimony when Jesus was on the cross. That, and when he, when he was beaten, he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But listen, but with the rich at his death. What was he buried in? He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, was, he, he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He was, he is an offering. He, be, he, who, he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God through him. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Death comes, but he lives. And, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. How many of you have been justified by him? For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How can you not see that that is Jesus? The Bible talks about all these things. The Bible gives, you can count on it. You know what this portion really speaks to me? I just am struck by it. I've heard people say, Christians are self-righteous. And it's unfortunate. I, I know there probably are some who name as Christians. I mean, there's two billion of us that name, that name ourselves that in this world. So I'm sure there are some who say. But Christianity is anything but self-righteousness. Christianity is, I'm unrighteous, and Jesus makes me righteous by his sacrifice. That's what Christianity is. 
Christianity is, is hey, listen, we're all sinners. And I certainly am one. And by the grace of God, his righteousness has been imputed to me. That's what this book is all about. The, you can count on it. And, and you can count on it because Jesus believed the Bible. <laughs> you know, Jesus quoted the Old Testament. If you believe in Jesus and don't believe the Bible, you don't believe like Jesus. Jesus believed the Bible to be the inspired word of God. He quoted all the time. He, took, he, he believed in some of the hardest places just as much as some of the easy things to accept. I mean, you know, Jesus believed that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Now, there are people who have trouble with that. They say, oh, just metaphorically speaking, not, not to Jesus. Jesus says, as Jonah was, in fact, swallowed and spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. We see Jesus quoting Scripture. We see Jesus taking a little portion of Scripture and building a whole teaching on this little phrase because he felt that little phrase, like all the Bible, is inspired by God, the Father, Holy Spirit inspired. You cannot believe like Jesus and not believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And the Bible has survived and thrived in all attacks around the world. Today, even today, from the time it came together, there was attacks on the Bible to eliminate it. French philosopher Voltaire, he was considered a brilliant man. He was really a smart guy, but he was an atheist. And he was brilliant, but he was wrong. He wrote a number of tracts deriding the Bible, and Voltaire made a very famous statement, which isn't that famous anymore, but he said, in 100 years, he said, he said, in 100 years from today, the Bible will be forgotten and Christianity will not exist. Voltaire died and for nearly a hundred years, his home was used as a de depository of the French Bible Society. They sold Bibles out of his house for a hundred years. He's dead. The Bible keeps going. Because heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my word will never, never pass away. And Jesus said in 1 Peter 1.24, the grass withers and, and the flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then lastly, we just say it this way. It's not very, it's subjective, it's not very objective, but it's observable. The Bible changes people's lives. The Bible changes people's lives. The Holy Spirit uses, God uses the Bible to transform millions of people's lives. Millions, billions over the years of people's lives. It's powerful. Today, um, Carol and I celebrate our 46th anniversary. And we, <clears throat> yeah. Thanks for clapping. For some reason, it's kind of become cultural. If somebody says you've been married so long, you clap. Because they never thought you were going to make it. Yes, I think that's what it's all about. <clears throat> but 46 years. And... Uh, it's amazing. 
Not, not that we just made it, but that we love each other now more than we did at any other time in, in our life. We've, our, our love for each other has grown. And I, I posted this morning, I, I wake up every morning and see the smile of the most beautiful woman in the world. I get to do that because of what Jesus has done in our lives. Let me tell you, if I didn't have the Bible, if I didn't live according to God's principles, we wouldn't make it. There's no way. What the Bible does, it, it changes us when we allow the truth in the Bible to change us. If someone says, you know what, I'm the same as I was, you know, 25 years ago, I'm sad for you because you weren't that good 25 years ago. <laughs> you just think you are, and you don't need to change. No, we all need to grow and become more like Christ, and that's what God's Word does for us. It changes us. It gives us truth. I am... Um, Two months ago, I'm going to close with this. I know we're ready to go. Two months ago, um, all of a sudden, something started happening in our house. Our shower, the hot water would turn off after about two to three minutes max. I mean, if you wonder why I came to sometimes with matted hair, you know, you understand. Yeah. So you, the first thing you do is you jump in the shower, you put the, you know, the soap in your hair and all, and then you turn the shower on and you get, try to get it out and all that. I mean, and it was crazy. And so I'm the kind of person, I don't like to just go out and buy, you know, order a new, this thing's expensive. I'm going to try to fix it. So I go on and do the YouTube things. I'm going to try to fix this thing, figure it out. And I'm, and all the things it tells you to do, it's not working. I called a friend who actually does this. He says, I don't work on that particular type. You'll probably have to call. He says, but I know, you know, um, sometimes there's a, a part in there that if you're not getting, um, it, 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 the sensor doesn't work if it's not getting, th thinks it's not getting enough force. I just kind of passed it on. Several months has gone. But then all of a sudden, I remembered what he said. If it's not getting enough water force. And I remembered just before this change, I had changed the water, uh, the, the spigot on the, on the shower. I, ch I changed the shower head. And you know how these new shower heads, they, it trickles. You know, they hardly give you anything, right? That's the whole point. You're gonna say, they're going to make sure you don't use too much water. Now, you could kind of, you could water your grass until it turns into a force, but you can't have a shower that actually washes you. So here's, so here's the, so I'm thinking, I think I, I put that, maybe there's a connection, right? So I turn on the hot water in the sink, which is counterintuitive if you're used to a tank system. You know, you don't want it you, you, you don't want as much hot water going everywhere else. You just want it there. So I turn on the hot water, and then I turn on the shower, and it keeps going. It keeps flowing. It keeps hot water. I found the answer. It was not pulling enough water with this limited flow from the tankless water heater that we have. It wasn't pulling enough for it to kick in and stay on. So... I end up ha go getting a, another shower head, and I worked it a little bit so it gives more flow. My own little thing. Don't call the police on me. <laughs> but some little, some one little thought, one information 
got me that. I mean, I would end up calling somebody. Maybe they'd have been honest and, and told me what was going on, or maybe they would have just sold me another unit. I don't know. But one little, just that little bit of information. And my hair <laughs> has all the soap out of it. Just a little bit. This book, it'll change your life. And if you'll read it like regularly, if you'll read it every day, you'll find truth that'll transform you. It'll change you. You, you might not know something is fixable, but your life is. Your, your marriage is, your family is, you are. God's word has truth that can take you to another level out of his desire and provision for you. If you'll, if, do you believe it? It's trustworthy. You can trust the Bible. You can trust his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word won't. If you're watching out there, if you're here, and you've not given your life to Jesus, today's your day. Tomorrow's not the time. A week from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, you're not guaranteed any of that. Today, it's not an accident. You're hearing the truth. God's word is true. And the Bible says you must be born again. You must accept Christ and his sacrifice for you. He died on the cross for you, for your sins. Otherwise, you die in your sins, and you will eternally be separated from God. But God has provided a way. And you can have all kinds of questions and, and so forth, which is fine. But God has provided a way. And he said this, that he had died for us. He was buried and conquered death. And if you put your faith in what he did and who he is, if you make Jesus your savior, in other words, you put away every other uh, attempt to, uh, for your eternal life and existence, and put it all in Christ. You trust in him as your savior. The Bible says he'll come into your life. He'll cleanse you from your sin. And you can just simply pray, dear God, I believe Jesus is a savior. Jesus, you are my savior. I ask you to cleanse my soul and help me to follow you from now on. I give you my life, Jesus. I give you my life. Help me to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, if you prayed that, if you meant that, if you desire that, go on the website and tell us that you accepted Christ. Let's close giving our hearts adoration to Jesus. Will you do that? Thank you, Lord.
Faithfulness, faith. 
Every word he says is true, right? Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you Wednesday night, church. Take care. So I will rest in your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness. I will rest in your promises. My confidence. Faithfulness, always in your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness. I will rest oh, in your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness. So I. Your promises, my confidence is your faith.